This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Hello, everyone. This is Matt Martin with East TraumaCast. Uh, we've got a great uh, live table discussion podcast today coming from the AAST meeting. Our topic is firearms injury prevention. Uh, we've got an excellent roundtable here assembled. Uh, again, I'm Matt Martin. I'm the host of the TraumaCast, and we'll just go around the table and have everyone introduce themselves, starting with Dr. Eastman. Greetings. I'm Alex Eastman. I'm the chief of trauma at Parkland, at the Reese Jones Trauma Center in Parkland. And uh, for purposes of this podcast, I think it's important to disclose that I am also a Dallas Police Department lieutenant currently assigned to our SWAT unit. And I'm Ronnie Stewart. I'm the chair of the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma. I'm Kevin Schuster. I'm a trauma surgeon from Yale University. Marie Crandall. I'm a trauma surgeon at University of Florida Jacksonville, and I'm a professor of surgery and director of research there. And I'm Nicole Stassen. I'm at the University of Rochester, where I'm a trauma surgeon, and I'm also the current president of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. All right. Well, why don't we get started, and we're going we're to talk about the recently published uh, evidence-based review on firearms injury prevention. And so, uh, Marie, you were the first author on that, and, and Alex was the second author. Uh, why don't you first start off and just tell us about uh, why did we even need that evidence-based review on the topic? So, I mean, this for anyone who's listening to this, it's not going to be a surprise about why it's a topic of interest. Firearms have killed 300,000 people in the last 10 years. So if that, that's the equivalent of a jetliner slamming to the ground every single day with 100 people on it. That's extraordinary. No one would ever get on a plane if those numbers were comparable for, 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 for planes. So, and yet, we all have firearms. And people have everyone who has an everyone who has who has ever heard of a gun has an opinion about it, if not two. And so I feel like the issue has become so politicized as opposed to a public health issue because people are dying. That it was it was an issue that East, that AAST, that any responsible organization that takes care of patients or cares for people at all should really embrace. All right, and so so we have this new evidence-based review, but before we had this, what was the current status of the evidence, uh, Alex? I mean, was this an added to the pile, or, or do we just not have great evidence well, to base any decisions? Yeah, no, Matt, I think that, that that was exactly one of the reasons why this was so important, and I think that the organizations involved, uh, certainly East under Nicole's leadership and the COT under Ronnie's leadership and the college, really recognized that this was is really an area where it's the most dangerous because it's emotionally charged, it's de potentially divisive, it's an issue that strikes at the heart of civil liberties and constitutional rights, and then when you look at the evidence, or the available evidence, it's essentially a black hole. There's a few sort of papers along the fringe of the issue, and you'll see that in the EBR, that, you know, there's not... 150 papers to dive deeply into and score. It's really a dearth of information. So um, we're going to try to bring the first step of a foundational approach and a public health approach to the issue of gun violence in the United States is to figure exactly what the scientific foundation is. And I think that you'll see that this is a one building block of a potential foundation, but the rest of it just isn't there. So we, we looked at two particular questions, the effect of restrictive licensing on firearm injury rates and the effect of concealed carry laws on firearm injury rates. And both have proponents and detractors. So the idea of restrictive licensing is that if you restrict access to weapons, that people who might use them for nefarious purposes or killing each other, their likelihood of being able to get weapons is lowered. Concealed carry laws, people argue that if if responsible people have the right to carry concealed weapons, that that will be a deterrent effect, if you will, for people who would otherwise commit crimes. Because if you don't know, if I don't know if you, Kevin, are 
carrying a weapon, I may be less likely to rob you because you might be carrying a weapon and you might shoot me. And by the way, he is. <laughs> and, and so that was a reason. We wanted to know if any of those assumptions were true. But as Alex was saying, this is inherently a challenging subject to study because so much of our evidence, virtually all of our evidence is retrospective. You simply can't do randomized prospective controlled trials handing kindergartners firearms and see what happens. It's just not something that we can do effectively. So all of the data that we were able to look at were retrospective observational studies. And some of them were very powerful, and we were able to make useful conclusions, but know that that's the state of the knowledge as of 2016. So let's talk about the first question you looked at, and that's restrictive licensing uh, programs. So, so first off, how would you define restrictive, and, and re what basis would you restrict someone from getting a firearm? So that one again, another challenge of this of this data collection and, and abstraction was the heterogeneity of the laws. They vary from state to state, and some of them are very restrictive, and some of them are less restrictive. But most of them include people being prohibited from having or owning a firearm if they're if they have previous hospitalizations for mental health issues, if they have previous felony or assault records or previous domestic violence assault records. And those are some of the big ones that, that make sense and, and exist in most but not all states. So those are restricted licensing. Um, the, the concealed carry aspect is most of those folks undergo a more extensive background check for any kind of criminal offenses and are either given or denied permits to carry a weapon. So, so let's talk about the restrictive licensing and why don't we, why don't we open it up to so just Kevin, your your thoughts on restrictive restrictive licensing is, is it? Do we think it's effective, and who should we be restricting if it's effective at all? Well, I think I mean I was sort of have a question almost then for Marie and for Alex in terms of the literature that they reviewed uh, for the EBR and how uh, definitive was it, and what sort of level of evidence was out there uh, for restrictive li licensing. As Alex points out, it is uh, it goes it such deep-seated feelings about the issue, um, I think you have to have extremely strong evidence to uh, make a statement where you're going to be able to sway people. So I'd sort of turn it back to them to ask what the level of the evidence was. I think that's a great question. So we found, um, we found, a four, we found 14 studies that were worthy of inclusion in our EBR. And all of them except, so 12 of the 14 were multi-state retrospective observational studies, and two were from two distinct metropolitan areas, Detroit and Washington, D.C. Of those studies, 11 of the 14 found, um, sorry, 11 of the 14 were multi-state. 12 of those studies, of those 14 studies, found some reduction in firearm homicide rates or firearm injury rates from anywhere from 7 to 40 percent with introduction of restrictive licensing. And the way that they performed those studies, they were retrospective, multivariate regression analyses controlling for things, controlling for a variety of things. The strongest studies, one that was done by some folks at Stanford and published as a white paper, controlled for about 60 covariates, including longitudinal times of mass incarceration, um, racial and socioeconomic status trends in certain geographic areas, the homicide rates in each individual reg region uh, that was studied. So not just overall state, but the homicide rate in, let's say, New Orleans versus Baton Rouge and looking at state homicide rates. And the, the studies that controlled for those things, that controlled for the crack epidemic and incarceration, race and socioeconomic status and all that stuff, those things all showed a market effect and a market reduction with the timing of restrictive licensing. It's not immediate. There tends to be a few-year lag time, but it, but it does happen and it is sustained. And that's been also found with other studies that, like the ATF analysis of the Brady Bill and the assault weapons ban. You know, Kevin, I think it's interesting because when you talk about restrictive licensing, what you're really getting at is the, is the idea of availability. And there's not been a ton of scientific work and, and published work on the role of firearm availability. Uh, the one exception to that, and, and it's a bit outside the scope of the question of restrictive licensing, but the one study that's an exception to that is a study out of Israel that was done in 2010 where they basically uh, eliminated Israeli soldiers' availability of their weapons on the weekend. So formally they were taking them home on the weekend. 
uh, and uh, every night, and they stopped doing that when they were on leave from from the ar you know weekend leave from the army. And just by that simple change, the suicide rate in the Israeli Defense Forces fell by 50 percent on the weekends. Stayed the same during the week. So, you know, there are little nuggets of compelling, high-grade evidence out there, but. On these two particular questions, there was some, but not a ton of evidence. I would say. And the the reason why we elected it, why why we agreed that it was that there was an effect, and we did recommend restrictive licensing to decrease firearm injury rates, was because the magnitude of the effect, and because of the near unanimity of the findings of the studies. Mm -hmm. So, 12 out of the 14 studies found that there was an effect, and all of them were in the same direction, and there was none that showed worsening. So, so, Ronnie, you just queried the COT about a lot of opinions and feelings on this, and, and you know, how would you summarize what you think the general feeling among the COT membership is about restrictive licensing and its effectiveness? Uh, well, one of the things I'd say is that I don't like the term. I mean, I'm just say restrictive licensing puts the wrong language to it. Uh, I think there's two different narratives that you should all be facile with. There's, if you look at the Committee on Trauma, which I think is very similar to the, the total population of the United States and surgeons in general, about half of the surgeons feel firearms are generally beneficial and are a critical right or critical personal liberty. About 30% feel that they're generally harmful and it's not a critical right and not an important liberty. And about 17% don't have a strong opinion either way. The, the, this discussion that's been in existence for the past 50 years at least, I have a copy of American Rifleman from 1968, and if you read it, it is, uh, it's quite similar to the discussion today. Uh, our goal is to reduce firearm injury. That's our goal. To our basic premise is to get policy change and get people to buy into that. We have to move from a polarized discussion to actually a civil, collegial, professional discussion. That because right now, in the current environment, people are uh, polarized and there is the uh, real tendency to, uh, to actually not talk to each other, but essentially yell at each other and, uh, and polarize into camps. There's actually some political reasons why that's beneficial. Both sides actually play to their political base. You have uh, self-defining position statements that, uh, that actually get people reelected. And so, therefore, no progress is made. So... There's two different narratives, two different stories. One is that firearms are generally beneficial and important for personal protection. The second is that the wide availability of firearms limits personal freedom and makes us less safe. For people who ascribe to the first story, the, the first story basically you can pretty much substitute gun and freedom. So when you talk about restrictive licensing of guns, you're talking about, I'm just going to translate that, restrictive licensing of freedom. That's how that translates to them. I think it's very important to understand the psychology if, you want, if we want to affect change. To me, if I were going to name it, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't call it restrictive licensing. I would call it appropriate licensing. I would call it... Uh, uh, safe licensing. I would call it uh, licensing and background check, which I can tell you that uh, about 88% of, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but roughly 88% of the COT members are in favor of mandatory background check and licensing for firearm purchases. Uh, but when you get to conversation non-starters, it comes in when you basically say, well, you, 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 you directly, Alex basically said it just a minute ago, you know, restricting firearm availability. For that 50%, and I think you just should know, there's 50% of the, these are surgeons, 
your colleagues, my colleagues, for 50% of them, it's a non-starter to, 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 to go there. And then they immediately then divide into camps. So I will take the bait. Uh, as a shocking guy. I know that's a, that's a really <laughs> surprise. Um, as a guy who uh, was not a firearm owner until my present job and now has to carry a couple of them uh, at all times, I think Ronnie's point is outstanding. And it, it, it is we have to be careful in that we need to approach uh, and attack this problem like scientists and like public health practitioners because I think that's the way forward. But the language is important because you have to show people who have deep-seated resistance to an abridgment of their civil liberties, which this becomes a part of. You have to show them the same science while at the same time not building a wall, allowing them to build up a wall that shuts off the discussion. I mean, pretty, and I think I would say in general, a lot of the science has come from people who are biased towards that firearms are, uh, they adhere to the second narrative. I think, in, and there's a tendency for all of us, myself included, to assume that, well, you think the way I think, or maybe if you don't think the way I think, you should think the way I think. But if you think about where we are and where we're recording this meeting, mm -hmm. this whole three and a half days is about trying to convince people to think the same as whatever you think and what you're presenting on the topic. I mean, that's what the, that's what we do. So we're in some ways have to fight the entropy of our own profession, which says, if you don't think like me, I'm going to spend a few minutes talking to you or writing about it. And I'm going to try to convince you uh, to come in line with us. So I and think this requires a wholly different approach. Yeah. And I, I agree with both of you. I think language is important and the psychology of it is important. Um, and, and I also think that if there were anything else that was killing 30,000 people a year, that was a trauma thing, like car crashes. We all care about car crashes. We don't think drunk people should drive. We don't think we should text we and drive, even if we belts. all do it. We think we should wear seatbelts. All those things, we get behind that. It's almost unanimous. It's the lethality of means and the impulsivity that increase our risk of dying of firearms. It's, it's, a firearm is something that was invented to kill things, right? So therefore, it's not really a surprise that that's what it does. It's effective. But we want to limit and restrict its use, especially in people who have history of mental illness, of families who have young children at home to understand safe storage. And that's, that's a subject of actually an upcoming evidence-based review. But I will be the per I, I, there is, you were talking about social psychology. There's also some social psychology that demonstrates that, that having that debate and having people on both sides can push the narrative in a direction. To me, the question is, what, the, the spike of whenever I was a young person, a young trauma surgeon, what happened in the late 80s, early 90s, and what resulted in the decrease? I don't think it was due to restrictive licensing. Honestly, don't. So it's a complicated problem. We evaluated the evidence, and we feel that there was an effect in each of these studies for their communities, for their states, for their multi-state regression analyses that, can, that controlled for things like the crack epidemic, mass incarceration, race, age, the, the burnout, the availability of weapons on the streets based on ATF data. Like there, there's some really well-done multifactorial, multivariable regressions that have been done that take into exactly those cofactors and potential confounders for these studies. So I think you, you can't say that in that it doesn't have, that you don't know. I mean, you can't, you can say that you don't know. I can say that East and our group believes that the restrictive licensing has had an effect in and above the longitudinal changes in these multi-state analyses. And so to me, the question is, and to, to for, for the for the scientists, I would say, if, if the goal is to reduce injuries, who's the population of interest? Who's getting injured with guns? Who's Who's the most commonly injured people? with guns. My gun-owning friends may not like this, but the, 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 the population most likely to be injured is the gun owners themselves and their families and their friends. Uh, and so to me, I want to work with them to get their buy-in to, to reduce this. And I think that means being careful about... Well, I think back to the social psychology. I think that you're exactly right, that 
that approach will work for some people. Some people are going to be persuaded by hard facts. Other people are going to not be persuaded, and you're going to have to like pry a gun out of their cold, dead hands, as they say themselves. And, and I, you know, I don't. I think that all of those are important. Just like when, just we've seen in the last 20 to 30 years, a market reduction in the number of people who are smoking. And smoking was just as contentious. You used to see people smoke on TV and on movies, and it was cool, and everybody did it, and it was massacring people, right? And so it was a multifactorial approach that worked. There was a science that showed that it was killing people. There was mass media campaigns. There was it's not cool to smoke. There was the great American smoke out. It was community engagement. It was science. And it was laws res restricting people who could buy cigarettes. You had to be older and older. And it cost more and sure. more with but taxes. There was, there was no constitutional amendment. Saying you needed to maintain a smoking militia. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to bogart the moderator role from Matt for just a second and ask Ronnie a question. And for the record, I've never had a drunk driving wreck. <laughs> and I do have Ronnie's driver's license in my pocket for his trip home when he gets back. I, actually, so I would be clear. So I mean to put, make sure this gets edited into the I wasn't saying that you did. <laughs> right, right. But my question is, you know, the way that I look at this, and I've come to look at this from a public health standpoint, is this debate is exactly akin to seatbelts in 1963 or 4, when faced with overwhelming numbers of fatal car crashes in the late 50s and early 60s, we took a stand. And, and we built the scientific foundation that said these things will make us more safe. But at some point, there had to be a leap of faith to install seatbelts and take the heat of the discussion to then prove that we were on the right track. So, I mean, do, Ronnie, you've been are a good friend and a mentor, and I'm curious if you see the same parallels or if you think that's an analogy that's not doesn't hold water. It fits perfectly with how I view it, okay, that, that and I've, I've been very transparent with this about uh, to people on both sides of the issue, is that uh, I think seatbelts is a, is a good analogy, that I think if, if, if and I'm going to, I'm going to, this is, I've had this discussion, I've had these discussions with uh, literally hundreds of people, hund hundreds of people who feel, some feel really they, they feel just like what I said. Some feel really strongly about it on both sides, and some not so much, but I've had this discussion with multiple people. So I'm going to channel what I think people who, who feel that firearms are generally beneficial would say, and that, that they would say that uh, actually it's a perfect example that uh, we didn't focus on getting rid of cars. We focused on actually making cars safer. Uh, and I've been really clear to, to, the, peop to, the, to the people who, who, who might be more to that you know, guns are really important for personal safety and protection, uh, to say, well, how about let's make a gun safer? Let's make a gun that would, uh, I believe it's very possible to make a gun. It, we're, we're, this is being recorded currently on an iPhone, which has uh, accelerometers in it. We can tell its position in space pretty reliably. Uh, I, to me, I, I think making, uh, making guns safer for the people who are going to be gun owners is a perfectly good strategy. That wasn't very popular. Just so you know, it was. It was. Well, I won't say that. It was. It was not. Uh, it was not one of the most highly ranked by those who have firearms in their homes in the COT survey. But to me, it is that that fits with the, the seatbelt analogy. To, I mean, I, I don't. I think it would be possible to make a gun that would be difficult to kill yourself with, if the technology existed. And no one would have thought 30 years ago that you could have a device that would be open with your thumbprint and that could tell where it was in space and I could know where I was at any time in the world. Yeah, that's exactly right. The fingerprint, the fingerprint technology already exists. We, we have it. Absolutely. And it's relatively cheap. I, and I entirely agree with both of your points about the public health approach. And I do think, again, back to social psychology, having the narrative have, have a wide array of perspectives is important and that's been shown it moves the narrative if you have people on both sides of it so you're going to have somebody who is expert at understanding the data like yourselves and who are perhaps more diplomatic and then you're going to have me and i personally cannot understand how someone would not be persuaded by the science similar to i can't understand why someone wouldn't believe in global warming it's like you don't believe as john stewart said or 
you know, John Oliver said on the Daily Show, like, do you not believe in owls? You think that the world is flat? I mean, it's science. It's, it's, it's not something you have an opinion about. You can have an opinion, but it doesn't change the facts. And I feel, that the, I feel that the evidence is really persuasive. And I'm the person that you trot out if you want to have someone say that. And if you want to be more political about it and you want to approach people who are not going to shut off as soon as you say something, perhaps you should ask these guys. So I think that, Ronnie, you said it, I think, best in some ways back at point-counterpoint, taking our own needs to be right out of the equation and really focusing on the public health issues, the dearth of good good data that exists so you can build, as Alex was talking about, that foundation of data that can help illustrate the challenges of the public health crisis that is interpersonal violence. Um, I think, you know, there are, I don't own weapons. That's my bias. I don't understand it. They kind of scare me. <laughs> um, so I do have a harder time understanding those who have that desire, but, you know, some buy designer shoes and some don't. So I think that, you know, we all have our own inherent biases, and the more we can take those out of the equation, the more effective we can be in some ways. Well, and I, and I, Marie, I think you said it the best, and I think we're probably worse at it than many professions because yeah. we're such data-driven people. And, and when you say, here's the data, here's what it clearly shows, and someone says, well, I don't care. That's still my opinion. And, I'm you know, still not going to vaccinate yes, my it's, it's, I think it's hard for us to accept it. And looking, like looking at that survey of the COT members, so there were 20% that weren't in favor of even doing research, research into reducing firearm injury. So the question is, I don't think 20, not 20 well, of them, when, when they broke it down into when they broke it down into those who owned firearms or didn't, among the ones who owned firearms, 20 percent were against any gun injury. So 80 percent were for. Yeah, exactly. So then, no, that's my question, Ryan. Yeah. So what kind of what kind of level of consensus do we need to get? And 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 I mean, you, I, in my mind, you, I see that 10 or 15 or 20 percent that. You are never going to change their opinion, no matter how much data you have. And what level of consensus do we need to reach, do you think, but before think just, just moving ahead and saying this is something we need to do? I, I, th I think an important thing about so – I think you're talking about com – you know, first of all, there's the facts, and then we all have the stories. There's the facts, then we have stories that explain the facts. That's actually – everyone wants to be evidence-based. I think – I would think you overrate your ability to be evidence-based. Mm -hmm. I'll just say, I, I think uh, we all. I was I was at a meeting that was where a very sophisticated marketing person showed evidence that uh, we all think of ourselves as Spock, but in reality we're more like Homer Simpson when it comes to <laughs> making decisions that we make. And marketers know this; they know how to how to address this, and so. So I think everyone likes to believe that they're evidence-based. All organizations, my organization, yours, believes that this, this organization we're at believes we want to be evidence-based. But sometimes we have the facts, which is the evidence, and then we have stories that explain that evidence, that, that explain those facts to myself. So that's my, that's my interpretation, my story. Whenever I realize that's my story, and my story is not your story, and I hold on to my story a little bit lightly. I, I can hold on to my story less, less firmly. Then I'm actually able to talk to you, and you and I are then able to come to actually maybe a creative alternative that might actually more align our stories up together. So, and then civility. I think, I think uh, in general uh, that uh, I have some concerns about the general professional ecclesiality civility if you look at us as a whole and that to me being civil is summed up by well how do I show lack of respect for you well one would be to say what you think is ridiculous if you what you think is ridiculous crazy and wrong whenever I do that I'm not really showing personal respect for you which is a basic principle of civility uh, and then the other way that I show would show lack of respect for you as an individual would be to say, well, you, you must believe the way I believe. 
that because clearly I'm right and you're wrong, the evidence is on my side. Not So really you have to believe the way I believe. Well, that's really not, I mean, I hate to break it to you, but that's actually not how the world is. But, the, but, but as, soon as, I, as soon as I can recognize you and, not, and be respectful to you, then we can actually have a discussion about a difficult topic. Uh, I, I mean, I obviously agree with you completely. You do? I do. But I think that, <laughs> that the, <laughs> we're not exactly uh, presenting, I don't mean us, but I mean the world is not exactly presented with the best role models right now on that front. I mean, rational, di- rational respectful discourse seems to be uh, uh, a bit of a lost art. Um, not just in our business, but I think in, in, if you look at politics in the world, I mean, just today, every, you know, everybody's going back and forth and back and forth in topics I think we would have never previously seen. So I think in some degree, you, you Ronnie, deserve some credit for driving the discussion but keeping it um, as biased and emotion-free as possible. I think I've actually told you the seven P's. I have seven P's to be, right, to be, yes. uh, to be, uh, participate, see if I can remember myself, <laughs> it's a problem of aging, be, to participate, to be professional, to uh, be a problem solver, to use a performance, uh, a proven performance improvement process. I think, though, the last three P's, I have three, three P's to go, is to, uh, be passionate, but patient, okay? Patient people often are not passionate, and passionate people are oftentimes not patient. But, but those are both required. I think actually being passionate about the issue of reducing firearm injuries, I've been, I think, I'll say pretty clear, I've said that I think this is a, should be a major, the major priority of the Committee on Trauma, and we've moved forward with it, and we are going to move forward with it. But uh, that requires being passionate and patient and persistent, the last P. So I think, you know, if whether you're young or old, I think those things are, whenever I look around the people who taught me those things, that's, I think those, it's okay, to, it's, it's good to be passionate. There's nothing wrong with it. But I, I do think we should recognize that particularly for – this is you, – you, you've talked about global warming. I could cite a list of issues from – that we seem un, unable to resolve. And actually, I think if we actually talk to each other and we're civil and collegial with each other and worked for things that would focus on the problem rather than what I believe to – once I realize instead of me trying to be right, you talked about the environment – my goal is not for me to be right. My goal is to reduce firearm injuries. That's that's what my goal is. It's not to I don't I don't care if I'm right or wrong. I just want to reduce firearm injuries. And to me to, re, to I think it's just not it's not I'm not just trying to be politically correct. But for me to reduce firearm injuries, I have to be able to talk to people who actually have the power to make that happen in a democracy. Uh, that's the way it works. And and I, I think that. We could do. We could serve our patients better if we were, we if we talk to each other. So Ronnie, I think that's really important because you're, what you're kind of what you're saying is that you would like, and it makes sense to be solution focused and not problem focused. I think your COT survey showed that people do think people dying of firearms is a problem, and would eighty-eight percent, eighty percent view it as eighty-eight percent view it as the should be the. Uh, high or the highest priority of the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma. So now we agree it's a problem. What are the solutions? And and there's I, I feel like because of the politicization of politicization of the na- the narrative, as you were saying, we've spent most of our time talking about how to deliver a message about what we found. And I feel like millions of deaths and millions of people were studied in multi-state studies, retrospective, class three evidence, not. You know, not randomized perspective clinical trials, difficult to do in this particular arena. Impossible like, to do, right? I mean, again, yeah, putting 
guns in the hands of kindergartners and saying going it's, it's, not even kinder, it's not kindergarten it's not all of but us it's right just, yeah mm-hmm. it's just not it's it's not practical and but i feel like we've spent a lot of time talking about how to deliver the message as opposed to what are the results of this and i, I feel like we used very solid methodology and came to the conclusion that based on the magnitude and the unit near unanimity of the effect that we felt that let's not call it restrictive, let's call licensing and background checks our reasonable approach to decrease the burden of firearm injuries in our communities. And, and then we also talked about concealed carries. I, I, but I feel like there's almost no other problem, public health problem, that we would spend as much time talking about the message in this arena, in this forum, to people who are presumably asking about the data as opposed to, you know, later when we're taking it to the media. How do we say this? How do we say, I don't want to take, take away your guns. I just don't want your third graders to get killed. So, so before we talk about more of the issues, let's, let's talk about the second point from the study was the concealed carry laws. And, and so what did you guys find about concealed carry? So we found um, 13 studies that merited inclusion for the second question, which was concealed carry. And we found that there was no evidence to support the idea that there was a crime suppression effect or a firearm injury suppression effect of concealed carry laws. Um, We also found some concerning longitudinal studies of concealed carry firearm owners, but that was separate from the general community effect, which it did not seem to have a crime deterrent or crime suppression effect. One interesting study found that in places that had places that where there was a concern about crime and upticks in crime, they were more likely to enact concealed carry laws. But that was that was also an aside and and uh, and one of the things that we saw when we were doing this research. Yeah, you know, Matt, I'll tell you that this is um, a bit of my own personal philosophy shift about this. I mean, obviously, having looked at the data closely as part of this process, and and and. Concurring with the conclusions because the process is 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 unimpeachable. I mean, it's an evidence-based review, and that process is, is works. But I can tell you that having, from a very personal note, having been involved in one of these mass acts of violence in the very recent past, I did not see any concealed handgun holders tapping me on the shoulder and saying, hey, I'm here to help. Let's go get this guy. So... I think that the idea that there's this mass crime deter—I mean, a mass um, crime deterring and countering force that's out there that's multiplied by having multiple concealed handgun holders around—the um, evidence just doesn't bear that out. And in the real-life practical application, at least in Dallas, Texas, uh, doesn't bear that out either. Well, the numbers are still very few. The numbers of people that are, have a concealed carry uh, license compared to the general public is still very small. And I think that's, a, I think that's an even bigger issue in terms of going back to the seatbelt analogy. Uh, this is um, personal liberty. I mean, this is an even bigger personal liberty than uh, whether you're going to have somebody who has um, you know, mental illness or whatever. I think that's a much more much easier uh, place where you can find common ground with people on both sides of the issue as opposed to the concealed carry part of it. So so let me throw out some counter-arguments uh, I've seen on Twitter and Facebook just in the past week. So what, what do you say to someone who says, well, Chicago has some strict gun control laws and they have some of the highest gun-related homicides and injury rates in the country? Well, it's, it's so interesting you that, that you bring up Chicago because the same thing was true in or New York or New York. So, so actually, New York is a New York health is... victory because the homicide rates in New York are down like eighty percent, ninety percent. So, so the the problem with uh, cross sectional analysis of saying these laws exist and this city is plagued by violence is, is what came is what came first, the origin, right? The chicken or the egg phenomenon. Chicago has always had very high per capita homicide rates, mm-hmm. and the rates, in fact before the restrictive laws were enacted in the 80s and 90s were even higher. So when I was a resident, there were 1,000 homicides in 1995, right, in Chicago. Now they're 500, and that's terrible. It's 500 too many, but it's better, and that's been somewhat of a public health victory. But because they're so eclipsed by the successes of Los Angeles and New York, I mean, Los Angeles and New York has fewer homicides put together than the city of Chicago, which is extraordinary. 
and they also have very restrictive gun licensing laws. So how do you attribute one a success and one a failure? And part of it is taking into account other things that were happening in the city, the socioeconomics of the city, the economics, and, and what the political situation is of each of those communities. There was extensive gentrification, and, and a lot of people attribute the successes in New York simply to the fact that Brooklyn and the Bronx and a few areas are being developed. And now you can't find an apartment in Brooklyn for under $2,000 a month. And that wasn't the case at the peak of the homicides in the early 1990s. And I don't know if all of that's right, but I do know it hasn't been studied in particular in those three cities. In, study, in states and in communities where it has been studied, where they've taken into account the longitudinal trends of that, of that place, looking at the average SES, the per capita incarceration rate, the per capita drug arrest rates, things like that, um, the, the studies that, the best studies that have been done, the longitudinal retrospective multivariate regression analyses show an effect, an additional incremental effect of licensing. Here's the other question. Uh, I mean, does, does we won't call it restrictive, we'll call it appropriate licensing. But I think the reframing is incredibly important. Oh, I agree. Because if you can take the initial wall out of it and, you know, I think if you were to ask anyone, if someone is mentally ill and hearing voices, should they have a, a gun in their hand? I think the majority would say no. If somebody has a history of violent offenses, should they have a gun in their hand? I think the majority would say no. I think you're really looking at trying to curb as best as possible the public health crisis that comes with interpersonal violence and the methods with, with which it can get enacted. And if those methods with appropriate licensure, much like, you know, Maybe somebody who's 90 and can't see out one eye shouldn't be driving. It's not something Maybe. that... Well, okay. <laughs> so it's, that's not the topic that we're talking about at hand. But I think, again, to echo those queries, just because the, the globe, there may be some challenge with a discussion by using nomenclature that doesn't throw lighter fluid on that flame, you can much better keep a simmering fire that ultimately ends up in a boil of success. So, so one, pro and one problem I have with those arguments is Chicago isn't a sovereign nation, neither are any of these cities, and, and does local gun laws, will they make any difference when you can drive to the next city or across the state border and you have very liberal gun access? So. So do we need a national gun policy, or should this stay at local level? You know, every city decides on their own. I think, I think one of the things we said and we, is that you should deal with a complicated problem as a complicated problem. Mm -hmm. and, and I think if you were to look at differences, you alluded to many of those differences, why there's cities that have differences. In, there's, there's a number of explanations. I mean, there's poverty. Okay, so I think, I think – Poverty and social capital, those are things that basically likely play an impact. There was a good, I think a very interesting study, it's really old now, but that looked at homicide deleted life expectancy. You can, you can calculate life expectancy and you can mathematically substitute homicide from those calculations, but homicide deleted life expectancy predicts homicide in Chicago neighborhoods. So, so, so it's, it's like there, there's some psychological effect if there's no hope. Okay, so we, I mean, you want to talk about what really makes a difference. I mean, I think if, where there's no hope that people perish, okay, that, 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 that I think those things play a, play a key role. So it's more, so that's why this is, that's why I think focusing and why I get away from the science, I mean, I, I think the science is really important not to diminish it. But the, um, the, the, the issue gets with, that's a, pretty small technical thing there's there's almost likely other bigger factors that, uh, that that come into play with respect to some of these things and I I, I if you say we're evidence-based I would just throw out an example and I'm sorry to, to talk about sociology but I, I, I threw this out at our morning report the other day and I was roundly beat up by every not everyone but a big I basically noted well 
you know, from my standpoint, I'm, I'm, and you have to remember, I'm from West Texas, but I said, you know, from my standpoint, it looks like to me that uh, I don't understand why we don't say we shouldn't ban football. Because mm-hmm. actually, I mean, what's 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 actually the benefit of the NFL and I'm college football? I'm surprised you're still alive. No, no, what's, what's, <laughs> especially what's, what's in the, Texas. Oh yeah. What's, <laughs> I, I mean, in case you haven't noticed, we have noticed Michigan and Ohio and and California. They also play football. Ohio, there. it's pretty. Yeah. But but impressive. But I mean, honestly, I think if we were if we were purely evidence based and purely about safety, we would say actually, why is anyone playing football? I mean. Why are they playing football? Mm-hmm. Uh, should we ban it? I think we should, and that's what I said. I think maybe we should we should basically say we're against football and we should oppose it. I, that's that's mm-hmm. not exactly the words I used, but I mean that met with sort of a pretty violent mm-hmm. reaction to the people in the room. But using that analogy, you do now have at least in youth girls soccer on a national level that there's no heading of the ball anymore. For concussive reasons, so I think you can make incremental progress, even into what appears the absurd. Sort of like, I, I agree. So. To, to me, to get that change, you have to have the. I, I, I just say you need the buy-in of the people who are playing the Agreed. sport and the people who were and here parents. and the parents and society as, as a whole. But I think by reframing that as not an infringement on an individual's personal liberties, but appropriate. Licensing of resources. I think it's a very different thing. And also safety, personal. Mm-hmm. I am safer if there are fewer guns in the hands of mentally ill people. I am, and I mm-hmm. like that idea. <laughs> I like to feel safer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I think this was really important work. Thanks for asking us to do this podcast. In terms of uh, final words, I feel like we we came together as a group, evaluated the evidence. And agree that that licensing that licensing changes in certain states have decreased what would otherwise be an even higher burden of gun violence. So we we support that. And concealed carry laws have not seemed to have that impact of crime or firearm injury deterrence. So those are the two things that we found. Moving forward, we hope to look at other aspects of the problem. As you're saying, it's not single faceted. So things like Gun safety and uh, and perhaps even you know firearm firearm safety training for kids do they have an impact so those are some of the things that our group is hoping to look at in the future and for all of us as reach as researchers scientists trauma surgeons we need to support funding for gun violence research and for firearm injury research because kids are dying you know it's it could be it could be your family member it could be your friend it maybe it was. And, and I, I think that taking a public health approach to this problem, identifying it, we agree that it's a problem for the most part, identifying potential solutions and looking, that, looking at those questions retrospectively and prospectively, and then believing the results and implementing change and evaluating the change, that whole public health circle is really what we should do. And, and letting our legislators know that, that that's important and that public health health approach is important is really key and is a responsibility for all of us. All right, Kevin. I think the key thing is I'd echo with Marie's final thoughts there and that we need to continue to build and develop the research. The With the clamps off of the funding for firearm research, I think we actually have the opportunity to start to make some incremental steps and maybe this will be like seatbelts and take 40 years and people won't feel it's like feel it's impinging on their personal freedoms if we can develop the evidence uh, behind the reasons for making any changes that we choose to make. Ronnie? So uh, I agree. I I think, and I'm going to say what I think the COT agrees with, uh, that uh, uh, agree that uh, we should be uh, doing and and funding for firearm injury prevention research should should move forward, that that's that's positive and that uh, uh, overwhelming agreement that physicians uh, should have the ability and right to counsel patients with respect to uh, firearm safety and firearm injuries. Uh, and even though we spent uh, probably three quarters of the time talking about where we might not agree with respect to things, I think that the COT, as I pointed out, doesn't is not totally in alignment with each other over uh, the issue of firearms and personal liberty. Uh, with respect to when it comes to policy questions, uh, we asked 15 policy questions on the survey, and uh, 
Uh, seven of the 15, there was 90% uh, or higher uh, support. Uh, three of the 15, there was uh, 80 to 90%. Uh, uh, and uh, four, there were there was uh, 70 80 percent. Only one was there less than uh, uh, 70 percent support for. So even though we, we may have different opinions with respect to uh, uh, the importance or, or uh, the importance of firearms in society, uh, we actually uh, agree that we should move forward. It should be a high priority. And to me, the the, the best approach is agreeing with. Um, uh, Dr. Crandall earlier, that I think actually doing science and, and having an open discussion about it is the best way to move forward. All right, Alex. You know, there have been two pretty big contributions to the literature on this topic. Uh, Ronnie and Deb's work out of the COT that was presented earlier at the meeting and the evidence-based review that we're discussing here. And I think that begins to form the foundation of the what I'll call the modern era of firearm injury research. And I hope that this kickstarts our ability to um, secure funding, continue to conduct meaningful research on the topic, and to move forward with, with policies and programs that bring even people on both sides of the debate together around our common goal, which I think we all concur on, which is the need to reduce firearm-related injuries in the United States. Yeah, and I'll say, you, you know, you said reduce firearm injury-related injuries, and we just had a great panel session on, the, you know, the national goal of zero preventable deaths, and I think that's the same goal we should have for firearm-related homicides and injuries. Um, I think we need a national policy and effort towards that, um, and I think conversations like this are a great start, and, and I agree. We need more research on this. We need to get rid of the ban on research on this. And he's president now. Thank you. Um, the reason I didn't want to start is I don't think that I, I don't want to be someone who colors someone else's opinions or thoughts because everybody should have mm -hmm. their own voice and their own words. I think um, organizationally EAST has always moved towards evidence-based review and evidence gathering to help build constructive guidelines and then um, then operationalizing those guidelines into effective outcomes. And I think this evidence-based review is a fantastic start. I think one thing that was brilliantly highlighted with this evidence-based review and some of the ones that are coming after, as Marie alluded to, is that there is a dearth of current research on this issue. The ban on research is on is its time has to end because we cannot address the public health issue without having the data to support that. And we can have all of these other things that have worked on the perpetuation of life and usable life. All right. Well, I want to thank everybody for a great discussion. Uh, obviously, more to follow on this. And uh, we will get back to the AAST meeting. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the EAST website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, Remember that all you need to do is look to the east. Mm -hmm.